Welcome to episode 188 of Comeback. Today, me and Nick are joined by Robert Stubblefield. We're going to talk about his background a little bit and a bit more about activism. Robert, welcome. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine this morning. Thank you so much. Yeah. Can you tell me, just to get a basic overview before we get stuck in, Robert, whereabouts are you from in the States? Okay, so I am from the state of Maryland, which is on the east coast of the United States. Okay. Okay, sweet. And you are based there now. Have you always been based there? Uh, yes and no. And I say that because while I was born, while I was born in the state, I did spend parts of my childhood in in, in places like Cleveland and Cincinnati, Ohio, which is uh, in the Midwest. And I did spend part of my childhood out in California for, for a time. So that, but I, I am based, if I am based here now, so, but I did spend part of my childhood growing up a little bit in the Midwest and the West Coast. Okay, sweet. What was life like growing up then in the Midwest and the West Coast? Well, it was very interesting um, because when I was out in Cleveland, it was, I didn't realize that, you know, my uh, my aunt lived in, in the hood until I got older because it was just so much loving and there was like a sense of community. Mm. It was like, you know, where we were at, it was like almost everyone knew each other and it was kind of like you always had all eyes on you. So in, in case if you messed up, <laughs> someone was someone would like tell you or tell like your aunt or tell your aunt or tell your parents like, hey, you know, your son or daughter was out doing this and they got punished. Um, in terms of when I was on the West Coast, I should say specifically when I was out in San Francisco, there was definitely very, you still got like the, the hippie influence, yeah. you know, it's almost mm -hmm. like, it's almost like in some place, it's almost like that, that hippie influence is still going on, especially when like in arts festivals. Um, I guess that's why I kind of like art so much because of the vibrancy and colors out there. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah, so that was so that so that so that's like you know my my takeaways from like living in those areas. Yeah, do you feel like you benefited from having a community like that to assist you in your upbringing? Absolutely, I think absolutely because um, one of the, I think right having those experiences it gave me a lot it gave me a lot more of a, a broader perspective in terms of like going outside your bubble by seeing how other people live. Um, how that, you know, makes you more open-minded, I feel like, in terms of, like, you know, understanding people's backgrounds, where they're coming from, why, why they think the way they think. Even if you don't, like, 100% agree with it, you do have a better understanding. Yeah, I see what you mean. And what kind of lessons do you think you've got from that? So the lessons I got from these areas, uh, <laughs> how much time, how much time do I have? But uh, <laughs> give us an overview. Okay, so the lessons I got from these areas are that like a sense of community is definitely possible. Um, the other thing that I got, especially as I as I, I've gotten older, is that um, people work hard. But at the same time, though, not everyone has the same opportunities that someone else may have. And the other thing that, and it kind of ties back to the, to, to the second to the second piece, is that if people can just band together and demand and demand what is rightfully theirs, like their basic human rights, then we probably be a lot better better off as a, not only as a as a country, I feel like, but but as a world. Okay, and with this upbringing and what we've discussed so far, do you think? these foundations then led you into pursuing activism later on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they definitely play, I, I would say they definitely played a, a huge role in terms of why is it that um, some of the hardest working people live in like the poorest neighborhoods, but yet at the same time though, we, you know, maybe not not even uh, like several miles away, maybe two blocks over. You see, like this this other area has like so many resources. They got all these benefits, mental health services. They got a thriving uh, local small business economy. They have uh, practically almost any amenity that you could possibly ask for. And a lot of them aren't even like some of them aren't even paying their fair share in taxes, whereas other people are doing all this and then, the, and then the other side like I mentioned they're living in areas that are overly policed I'm like you can't you know this this, this doesn't make any sense to me 
Um, so that definitely played a huge role in how I got into activism. Um, but the, the catalyst, um, maybe I'm jumping the shark here a little bit, but um, the catalyst in a sense, um, how I got into food, got into activism, uh, I, I was around the age of 12 when I got started. Um, and um, my assistant principal, I was in the sixth grade, I was finishing up the sixth grade and he basically, I got into some trouble and he basically, um, as a punishment, um, told me I had to attend every PTSA meeting while I was at Briggs Cheney Middle School. So <laughs> that's that's how I, that, that was the catalyst for getting me involved in activism. Whoa, okay. Whoa. Telling me a bit more about that, you know, what it was like attending those meetings. Okay, so those meetings I felt were very interesting. And to, and to provide the context, um, I went to a very, very diverse middle school and there wasn't any racial majorities. Like there was a good amount of white students, a good amount of black students, a good amount of Asian students, a good amount of, of, of Hispanic students. So you would figure on paper, the PTSA would reflect the, the population of the school. Well, when I went to these PTSA meetings, I noticed that with the exception of me and my mom and um, um, my buddy, my buddies, um, Hector and, and Hector and Ricky, um, um, these, it was majority white and they were making decisions, you know, without getting the input of like, you know, the stu about students or even parents of color. And I remember my mom receiving a lot of pushback because she was fighting for a lot of summer enrichment programs, you know, that help, you know, you know, black and Hispanic students, like, you know, you know, get ahead in STEM, which is like um, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And when my mom became the treasurer of the budget and finance committee, she received some pushback on that, even though she has a bachelor's in accounting, um, owns her, runs her own accounting practice. And she also um, was helping um, this business, um, it was a cleaning service business, like, you know, help maintain their books and their payroll. And, you know, helping them, even though she did a great job um, with fiscal stewardship. So those meetings I felt were like very, there was a lot of like, you know, uh, you know, it was like, it was like, it was kind of like going back and forth. Like there were some allies to be sure, but there was kind of like a little bit of very intense meetings at times. Right, I see. And right. with that, afterwards, what kind of, I'm trying to think of how I word this question, what sort of endeavours did you pursue to continue your activism is in, what projects did you get involved in following these meetings, if that makes sense? Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So, I would, so in addition to helping my mom out with summer enrichment um, projects, um, I would also um, try to fight for more getting more black history into the schools. Uh, one, of, in fact, one thing that I remember was when I was in the, uh, the eighth grade and um, we wanted, I wanted to do something more for black, for black history month. And one of the things I, I put forward was like, you know, why don't we have a, a field trip to the Sandy Spring um, Slavery and Underground Railroad Museum? Because a lot of people didn't know that, you know, the, the role that Montgomery County, where I, where I, where I live, it was um, part of the slave trade. And as soon as I mentioned that, you had a couple people asking, you know, I, are you sure this is a good idea? Because their concern was that if the black students were to go on this field trip, then they would start a riot. And I'm looking at them like, no, no one's going to start a riot. So they gave me this challenge where they're saying, okay, if you can get at least 20 signatures then this field trip can go through. And I was like, sure, no problem. So I, I, I wound up getting over 20 signatures. I think I got around 50 signatures and I was able to, because I, I was helping my mom on the budget and finance committee, you know, I was able to say, hey, listen, we got over $60,000 in the reserves for funding. We can easily take 300 of that to pay for a, bu to pay for a bus and lunches for those of us who are going on this trip. And when we went on the trip, like around uh, on February, you know, 
everyone who signed up, it was like a beautiful mix. Like, you know, you had you know, black, white, Hispanic, Asian students. They all came, went went to the museum and they came back and they were like, oh my God, this is like the best field trip they ever been on. And when I went to the PTSA meeting later that day and I said, and the good news is no one rioted. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. And that's crazy that their initial response was, oh, if people see this and see things that might have previously happened that were unjust, that they may start a riot. I find it crazy that that was one of the initial reactions. Well, for me, I wasn't really totally surprised because for these parents to say that, I looked at their kids. Because some of their kids, some of their children, you know, were, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to find like, a, like a, a nice way to put this, but some of their kids were like very covert racist. Yeah. I mean, I guess you can say that like, you know, on paper, they may be, they may have smiled and would have been friendly, but like they would start asking, but, they, but just like their parents, they would be like, well, why is it that? Why is there a Black History Month? Like, you know, why isn't there a White History Month? And I'm kind of looking at them like that already exists. You just don't call it White History Month. You call it U.S. History and it's mandatory. Um, and the other thing too, so when these parents are like doing this pushback and, and like I mentioned earlier, like it was kind of every time we tried to get a little something, whether it was like the summer enrichment programs, you had some people at these meetings, some, some parents at these meetings saying, you know, I don't know why you guys are pushing so hard for this. You know, black black children and Hispanic children, they don't like being scientists, despite the fact you had um, black astronauts, despite the fact you have a ton of black engineers, you have a ton of Hispanic engineers. And so that was very, you know, ignorant. Um, in fact, it got to the point where we had to um, form our own caucus within the PTSA, you know, to at least act, um, agitate the principal and just saying, you know, actually the principal to tell to tell some of these parents like to shut up, basically. You don't know what you're talking about. And the fact that we had to do that was was so sad, you know. Yeah, no, it's quite bizarre that that sort of action needs to be taken. Now, was this just remind me your college years or your university years? So this was middle school. Um, as we go, so this so this was like the middle school years. Uh, my high school years, so my during my college years, um, I was still involved. I went to Bowie State University, which is a for the, which is a, a, a historically black college or university. And when I was at Bowie State, I still got in, I still got involved. Um, one of the things that I remembered was the uh, the case of Troy Davis. Um, so for those of you who don't know, um, Troy Davis was uh, a man who back in 2011 um, spent 25 years on death row. And even though it came out that he was most likely innocent of the, of, of the charges against him, he was still put to death. And I remember like, you know, going out and protesting, you know, asking um, Obama to try to intervene. Um, helping lead letter writing campaigns, trying to convince the, the Georgia Parole Board to take Troy Davis off death row and declare him innocent, especially when it came out that, um, especially when, when I think the person who actually committed the murder came out and confessed. So I'm like, you got the real murderer who came out and confessed all these years later, and, and Troy Davis still got executed. And um, at the same time, in 2011, you have to remember there's also the Occupy Wall Street movement, and I was um, I was pretty involved in that in terms of like you know the income inequalities, especially because we were still uh, dealing with the effects of the Great Recession. Yeah, I see. Yeah. What was the steps after that? These are all instances and events that you took part in in those years. Are there any further? protests or any further incidents that you want to shed light on oh yeah absolutely so um recent so so currently um in addition to um police brutality um i've been very involved with this group called the bethesda african cemetery coalition mm. and um they've been involved in trying to memorialize a historic african-american cemetery in montgomery county and it's currently being desecrated um, the actually was desecrated before, back in the early 1960s, um, when 
the county acquired the cemetery and began um, paving over it, removing tombstones and a bunch of uh, the skeletons to make way for a parking lot for an apartment complex they were they wanted to build there. And how um, we got started was back in 2016, they were putting together what's known as a master development plan. And um, they basically um, had a meeting with the Macedonia Baptist Church, which is the only um, sole surviving black institution in, the, in, that, in that area in particular on River Road. And what winds up happening is I think the developer was trying to say something like, well, this is the place where there's an alleged cemetery. And fortunately for us, um, we had a member of, um, of, the, of the church trustees named Harvey Matthews. He was at that meeting. He said, that's not an alleged site of a cemetery. There was a cemetery there. I should know, I grew up playing among the tombstones. And so when that happened, um, Marsha, who was the, uh, the chair of the social justice ministry of the Macedonia Baptist Church, she was like, wait a minute, there's a cemetery there? And so that's how we got started. And for the past several years, we've been basically been fighting the county. We've been fighting uh, the private developers, um, you know, in terms of like trying to have a meeting to begin the process of memorialization. Mm. And what wound up happening mm. recently is that um, HOC, which is the Housing Opportunities Commission, they recently sold this uh, this land in the, in, the, in the apartment complex to um, this um, real estate company called Charger Ventures, and they sold it for about $60 million, and they're expecting to close the sale uh, like sometime in early September. And so we, in addition to protesting, we recently filed a lawsuit because according to Maryland law, if you're going to sell land or property that is or was used as a burial site, not only do you have to petition the court to, to, to determine the, um, the, the, the type of sale and what type of process, but you also have to contact any living descendants, you know, of people who were buried in that cemetery. And we have about four people who are descendants of those who are buried in that cemetery. And they've come out and said they didn't receive a phone call, never received a letter, they never received um, an email. Um, saying, hey, we need to get you involved in this process. So that's currently what's, what, we're, what we've been going fighting, fight, fighting on um, right now. So Yeah. Now, with that, do you mind if I ask you, obviously, activism seemed to take, you know, take center stage, really, around June 2020 due to incidents like George Floyd. Do you mind if mm -hmm. we discuss possibly that incident and the whole Black Lives Matters movement, how it's progressed? Sure, absolutely, like, um, definitely. So I call like the summer of 2020, I call that the summer of the glorious uprisings. And I say that because like everywhere, not just in the United States, but around the world, they were having um, their own Black Lives Matter protests, they're having their own movements that protest of solidarity for the martyrdom of George Floyd. And what those protests did was that um, it kind of breathed new life into Black Lives Matter, um, into the Black Lives Matter movement that other countries, especially like, you know, in other countries around the world, um, like Germany and England, um, they're starting to take a look at how police brutality affects um, they're black and non-black um, and, and non-black citizens of color. Um, they're also looking at like the wealth inequities in a lot of these areas. Um, in the United States in particular, um, and that because and it was um, in the United States in particular where, where I'm at, you know, seeing like, you know, it was multi-generational. You had people who were like the elderly being involved. Um, you had, of course, people as young as nine out there marching with their parents. Um, even though we were in the midst of a pandemic, everyone was like wearing masks, sanitizing, taking the necessary precautions, you know, making sure that everyone's like, you know, looking out for each other and um, basically agitating for um, legislative session in terms of, um, get, especially in the state of Maryland, like we were able to get rid of the law enforcement officers bill of rights, um, getting that repealed. 
Um, we also have been successful in terms of get, trying to establish a force of use standards at the state level. Mm. Um, granted though, on, um, the efforts to end qualified immunity for police officers, that's been stalled. Um, qualified immunity um, for those who may or may not be aware is that it's basically, it gives uh, a public official, like a police officer, for instance, it makes it harder for them to get fired. It makes it hard for people to sue them or press charges. Um, so that, that's pretty much what qualified immunity does in a nutshell. And so basically we weren't able to get it past this past legislative session and the Maryland General Assembly, but we are looking on terms of like having more better success in the next General Assembly because as we made clear, especially because we're in an election year right now, we made perfectly clear if you were against ending qualified immunity, if you were against um, getting rid of the law enforcement officers bill of rights, if you were against taking cops out of schools, we are going to vote you out. We're going to find candidates that are that you know that are progressive. We're going to put them in these positions that at the local and the state level to really push us forward because when it comes to racial equity. You know, we need to be taking, I mean, this was a problem. We should, this should have been done before the pandemic, but the pandemic really showed that we really need to be taking great leaps forward instead of incrementalism because incrementalism, incremental steps to me, from my perspective, it's just a slow death. You know what I mean? So I'm literally like, we need to take great leaps forward on it. For sure. And throughout this period, have there been any particular highlights for you in what you've managed to achieve? Well, you know, there've been a couple of highlights to be sure. Um, we were able to, at least at the local level in Montgomery County, we were able to get like the Racial Equity and Social Justice Act passed. Um, what that act did was that one established within the county executive's office, like the Office of Racial Equity, um, it also, um, in addition to that, it now has to require the council to look at um, any policy that comes across their desk that become law, they have to look at it through a racial equity lens. And if it doesn't really work on moving um, racial equity forward, um, they have to send it back and get it reworked. Um, but also, like I mentioned earlier, that like trying to create a, uh, a use of force standards, you know, one of the things that, that does that does does is um, banning chokeholds um, because chokeholds, um, I think um, you may have been um, maybe aware um, chokeholds are being used um, in many cases of police brutality. And the fact that um, I, I got to point this out, the fact that the WWE banned chokeholds in 2007, well before a lot of these police departments, it kind of makes you look at police departments like, wow, so the, so like the WWE has more ethics than you, than you all do, and, and my tax dollars pay for your job. Um, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so um, we basically are like, so those are some of the things that we were able to get, uh, like I mentioned, passed. Um, of course, we're still trying to um, move, get 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 more done, but at least we got uh, what I feel is a pretty decent foundation. Right. I see, and with that, possibly on the contrary from the highlights, what do you think are the biggest challenges that we still face in bridging that gap of inequality? Well, some of the challenges we face, I feel, part of it is um, education. And I say that um, because, you know, I, I got my start in education and activism, is that um, a lot of people don't, you know, you know don't want to, or don't know actual history in terms of how, like, this country got founded. We typically deal with what I like to call, what we're taught in schools here is I like to call it fan fiction, or um, in terms of the fact that we focus more on the, um, the, the, the good parts. And I'm not saying we shouldn't focus on those things because they do play a role to be sure, but we don't focus, but we don't study, we don't study the history that would hold this country accountable. Because um, someone said it best when they said, history is the light that we use to guide 
out of that we use to guide us out of the darkness. And so by telling like the actual history and, and then discussing solutions and how we best move forward um, would, would definitely be a big step in the right direction. So that's one. The second thing that um, is kind of, uh, you know, that's kind of um, hurting us in a sense is some of the, is, is the media. And when I say that is because this is something that, that both quote unquote conservative and liberal media do is that they promote their favorite narratives. Like they will take a soundbite and not give like the full context. They will um, try to pacify like, you know, any, any radical voices. And it really shouldn't be radical when, when someone's telling you to defend yourself um, in the face of police attacks, and they want to be like, well, and they always want to be like to nonviolence, but they don't understand nonviolence. Non there's a difference between nonviolent protest and being um, and being a pushover. Nonviolence means that you're capable of being violent, but you're choosing not to. Mm. And on top of that, nonviolence itself is a is a is a uh, to me, it's a passive force in the sense that while you may not be responding in violence, you're standing firm. And I, I think that's very important that we distinguish the difference. And the thing that people always try to push the narrative, I'm pretty sure that you've seen it, um, that, that you and Nick have seen it probably watching the news um, over in Vietnam, is that they'll say, oh, a lot of Black Lives Matter protests are violent, even though studies have shown that majority of Black Lives Matter protests have been peaceful. You know, not one BLM activist or BLM organizer has advocated for violence yes. or burning down. Yes. No one has done that. But yet when you see what happened, and I'll give like a recent example, you saw what happened on January 6th, like an attempted insurrection, an attempted coup d'etat in the United States. And you got people trying to say, well, that wasn't really an insurrection, even though you had uh, newspapers from Thailand saying insurrection. You had newspapers in Vietnam saying attempted insurrection in the United States. Um, you even had um, a Kenyan newspaper um, poke fun at the United States saying, who's the banana republic now? You know, as a response to um, someone saying this only happens in banana republics. So um, there's so many things that have been that that have been going that 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 have been kind of been a hindrance and a problem in, in many ways, uh, like the education, the narrative, like the narratives the media is choosing to push and choosing not to push, and um, those those to me are and of course like people refusing to listen. That's the other thing too. It's like you got so many people who don't want to who don't who've never been a victim or who've never been a survivor of racism, who've never been a survivor of classism, but they have very strong opinions about how other people should handle it. And I'm, and I'm like, why don't you actually sit down and talk to and get out your comfort zone and actually talk to someone who lives in, who lives in like a, a, an underfunded area? Why don't you talk to someone who knows what it's like to experience police brutality? Why don't you talk to someone who has tried, you know, get, you know, who's tried starting a business, and even though they have A1 credit, they have the collateral to back up the loan they're trying to get from the bank, and they've shown they've gotten like a pretty decent stream of revenue, and they still get turned down for a bank loan, even though they don't have a, a criminal record. But meanwhile, like someone who their counterpart, um, who maybe only has a high school education, has a prison record, you know, you know, who has a high school education, they're able to get like a bank loan and no problem. And that's the very thing people don't don't like really listen. Like, like, like they don't they don't really listen or take the time to listen. It's like they listen to respond, not listen to understand. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I also think it's key to remember in these situations the value and importance of stepping into somebody else's skin and seeing it from their side rather than with your eyes and your ears. Mm -hmm. Ex exactly. And you hit, you hit the nail right there on the head, Connor. Uh, oh, I, I got a quick question. Is it, uh, how do you, how do you say your name? I don't want to, I, I, I don't want to mess up. Is it Connor or, or yes, Connor? Connor how do you absolutely fine, mate. 
Okay, 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 great. Thank you so much. I, I, I appreciate it. I don't, I don't like butchering people's names, and uh, I try. I, 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 so I just ask, hey, how do you, uh, how do you, how do you pronounce your name, or how's it, how's it, how do you call yourself? So. <laughs> yeah, of course. No worries, man. Uh, thank Connor, you. Connor, people usually ask you that, right, Connor? Yeah, sometimes it's usually it's either Connor or is it Corner, and it's like it's Connor, <laughs> Connor. I think we were chatting yesterday about it, where because the two O's, it's like it's difficult to pronounce for some people. Uh, Rob, um, mm-hmm. I just want to tell you, like, uh, man, your work is inspiring, you know, like, and uh, I can see you being a role model for this next generation of activists. And uh, so I wanted to ask you, who are your role models in activism? Oh, wow, man. Thanks. Well, thanks, Nick. I, I definitely appreciate that. And um, so my role models in activism, um, I, I got to start with my, my parents, um, because my father is a former Black Panther, and my mom, she was an education activist. Um, in fact, like I mentioned, I think I mentioned this earlier, um, um, when getting to my background a little bit, she was the main reason why I got into it. Um, my other influences, um, Malcolm, um, Malcolm X, um, Dr. Martin Luther King, Fannie Lou Hamer, um, Ella Baker, Afeni Shakur, Huey Newton, uh, Patrice Lamoon, but I can go. I can go down the list on, on who are my influences because they all they all t- um, taught me something in their own way. Um, Dr. King showed us that uh, showed us the importance of boycotting. Um, Marcus Gar- uh, Fannie Lou Hamer talked about the importance of organizing at the ground at the ground roots level. Um, they also um, and Malcolm showed us to do it by any means necessary. And even so, I'm even influenced by some of my peers. Um, there's a group of ladies that I know. They actually founded their own uh, yoga group um, called Ground Roots Healing. And their mission is to not only provide community wellness, but to decolonize yoga. Um, so I think that, so that inspires me as well. So those are some of my, those are some of my many influences. And um, in terms of inspiration, um, I actually had like one of my, uh, one of my buddies who I used to teach, um, uh, I used to go to UMBC and, and guest lecture. He's actually running for um, state se- um, state senate, and he said that one of the reasons why he is running is because he was influenced by me. And I'm kind of like, what? That's huge. <laughs> yeah, it's very huge. So I, I feel I feel very honored. You know. Yeah, Man, this makes me think also like um like I've. I haven't been very active in activism in the past, but I just feel something in me just recently, like saying like, I should get involved. So what what can someone like me do to start this? Oh, okay, absolutely. So if you wanna get more involved, the first thing I have to say is read, like, you know, read up on what's going on, like, on, like current events, what's going on in your hometown, the issues that are going on. Um, one of the things that, if I can borrow an example from the Panthers, is the Panthers had a series of rules. And one rule, which is my favorite rule, is rule 26. And that was anyone who was in a leadership position had to read for at least two hours a day to keep abreast of the changing political landscape. So I think that is very important that you read about what's going on. The second thing that I would say, I would also say to, you know, to get started is to look into organizations that you know that are doing the work that you want to get involved in, see how you can get involved with them. Like for instance, if you are a good graphic designer, offer to you know draw up um, images. If you are, are are a good writer, you know then help write, help create a newsletter. Um, if you they need help, someone going door to door, go out and help canvas. Um, there's so many things you can do. And the final thing is take a look at your skills and talents and see what you can offer. And I say that because protesting ain't for everybody. Um, there's some people I just wouldn't put on the front lines, but there are some people that like, you know, are great at developing policy. You got people that are great at, like I mentioned, they can write, they can call, they can, you know, call people to go organize support. Um, you got people who can, uh, teach you know like you know can probably break things down in ways that that we can't so like that's definitely very important so like you know by taking a breath of like what skills that you have um the organizations doing the work that that you 
support and um, educating yourself, like, you know, and talking to people who, ha who have these experiences. Um, there's so many people, there's a, there's a bunch of people that I mentor that I, I tell them the same thing, like, you know, talk to people who've been in activism, like a lot long, you know, for a long time, like, you know, figure out what the strengths and weaknesses and how movements die off and what you can do to prevent that from happening. Cool. So something came to mind. I don't know if it's so much of a question, but maybe it is something that we can talk about. Like you mentioned, we should be catching up on our reading. And uh, like, funny enough, uh, just this month, it's kind of random, but I was watching the Simon Bolivar Netflix series, and and they entered, they had slavery in that time period in Venezuela, and this mm -hmm. somehow linked into this other Netflix series called Amend. I don't know if you heard that, Rob. Yeah, I've but heard of it. Like, you know, Will Smith hosting it. Yeah. Yo, it's really powerful, man. Mm-hmm. And that got me, like, introduced uh, more thoroughly to Frederick Douglass. And then that got me to download the free PDF of his autobiography. And it's just like a rabbit hole that I'm catching up on all this uh, history that I thought that I was familiar, familiar enough with already, but apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, um, so I'm glad that like now talking to you was like the update of that. It's like, where are we right now? <laughs> well, my thing is, and I'm, I'm glad that you are, that you are doing reading and Frederick Douglass, you know, his, the stuff that he was able to do, um, I thought, I think is phenomenal, but I'd like to start off with um, Simon Bolivar, you know, um, I know he's called the liberator. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the, like, because like, you know, in many respects, like his dream of a, of a united uh, Latin America, that was his ultimate goal. But what a lot of people don't know is that, you know, the effects that slavery had in, in South America, like the anti-Blackness. See, because here in, in the United States, as, as, as messed up as it is, it's relative, the racism is relatively simple. You're either white or you're not. Um, whereas like in, in, in Latin America, and that would include the Caribbean, that would include like Central America and South America, um, the, the racial caste system that was developed, um, where it was kind of like, I want to say a little bit more covert, because, you know, whereas here in the US, you had like the one drop rule, and like many places in Latin America, like in Cuba and Brazil, for instance, someone could look at you and be like, well, his, her grandfather was black, but she's not really black. So she can go to school here, but they would still like teach like that, the levels of anti-blackness that would be indoctrinated. So yeah. uh, that, like a lot of people don't know, I mean, if I can use Argentina for, for instance, at one point the, um, the Afro-Argentine population used to be over 300,000, but today it's almost virtually non-existent. Um, reason for that was because most of the Afro-Argentinian uh, population in the 1870s got massacred. Um, some of them wound up fleeing to neighboring nations like Uruguay, Paraguay, and Brazil. Um, but a lot of them, like you know, got were killed off. So that's something that a lot of the, the history books won't tell you about. But you brought up a really good point. You know, this is what I was saying earlier in terms of the fact why history is very important, why black history is very important, because that's the other side of the coin that we don't really learn, that we don't, that we don't really hear about in school. And while I was fortunate in the fact that growing up in my household, that reading black history was mandatory, a lot of people don't know where to begin. A lot of people don't know um, where to look. And that's why it's very important when we talk about education, you know, in terms of if we wanna make our public schools more equitable, we got to make sure that, that we teach the real history, the real deal holy field, not the, like I mentioned, not the fan fiction that we that, that that's peddled. Um, so I'm glad that you're taking the first steps. I'm glad you're 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 going into the research, looking into shows like Amend, um, the, the show about Simon Bolivar, and that you're reading on um, Frederick Douglass. He actually wrote three autobiographies. Um, you know, he wrote three. I mean, there was like, you know, the first one, narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. Um, my bondage and my freedom. Um, he really goes into detail about, especially where he's, you know, like where he talks about like uh, where, what he's been doing. Like um, he picks up where the first one left off with him helping find the North Star with Martin Delaney, who 
in many aspects, is considered the father of black nationalism. Uh, Delaney was also a major um, in, the, in the Union Army during the Civil War. And he also saved the city of Pittsburgh from a pandemic, you know? Wow. Uh, yeah, a lot of people don't really know about him, um, but uh, that's something that, that's very important that like, you know, you, you ask these questions, you know, that, you know, you read and, and not only read, but also question what you read, you know what I mean? So that's, that's true, that's true. Part. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering, Rob, this comes to what we briefly touched upon earlier. Do you think it's important to get comfortable with being uncomfortable for example these topics might bring up a lot of uncomfortable feelings but yet we should still have them because that is the point to make change you have to go through that process is this something you would agree with oh absolutely 100 percent um that this reminds me a lot of uh the saying about comfort zones it's like someone said it best when they said your comfort zone may be beautiful but nothing ever grows there and that's what we're talking about. We got to get comfortable being uncomfortable because, yes, this this history, what's going on, like, you know, right now, it may make you uncomfortable. But if you're really serious about making these changes, getting involved, you've got to understand, you got to come to terms with incidences in your life that you may that you may not have brushed off, but now looking back as you gotten older, it's kind of like, oh snap, you know, maybe there was a lot more going on than I was aware of. And we also gotta like come to terms with ugly history because someone said it best, I think it was George Santayana who once said, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And that's why it's very imp imperative that we do these things that we, that we, that we, is growth painful? Absolutely but we become better off for it in the end and where we're kind of like, okay, you know, I now, I know more than what I did yesterday. And so let me just like keep continue learning, continuing on this process because change is a process. You're constantly changing. And so you really gotta like understand like, you know, mistakes are gonna happen, mistakes, you know, um, you're gonna have your stumbles, but it's important, you know, you learn from the mistakes so you don't repeat them. So yes, absolutely, I agree with that 100%. And to follow up on that, this might be slightly tricky to answer as it might be a bit broad, but from your experience in activism, from where you started to now, can you see any tangible signs of progress? Yeah, I, I definitely um, can see some signs of progress. I see some signs of progress uh, let me just ask, are you talking about progress um, with how things have gone from the time I've gotten started or progress within myself? I just want to make sure I, I, I'm, I just want to be clear. Yeah, uh, well, I initially did mean progress since you started. However, if you don't mind answering both, that would be great. So the first okay. one, yeah, what you've seen happen since. Well... What I've seen happen ever since I've gotten started is that I am glad that I'm starting to see younger people. It's, it's funny when I say younger people because uh, I'm still, I mean, I'm still, I'm still in my 20, I'm still, I'm only 29. So I, I guess I'm still considered young, but I'm glad that I'm seeing children like, you know, you know, elementary school um, having like starting to trying to ask why are things the way they are? They're wanting to get more involved. I think that's a beautiful thing because that reminds me of, of what Huey Newton once said in terms of, he said the youth um, always inherit the revolution. And when you really take a look at revolutionary movements, these are mostly led by, by young people. Um, and so that's something I, I, I do like seeing. Um, and as for myself in terms of progress from where I got started from where I was 12 to where I was 29, um, I would say there's definitely been some progress in terms of the fact that, that um, you know, instead of like, you know, definitely coming into my own on, on certain things, because when I was like, you know, when I got started, you know, even though I had like, you know, certain victories, I still was kind of in some ways following the lead of, of my mom, which was great, which was great in terms of like helping get some enrichment programs, some literacy programs, as well as getting a uh, prom dresses donated so that way uh other people can actually go and have a and have a good prom or at least they'll have a dress or a tuxedo for the prom um 
but also like seeing where I, where I was at, like, you know, in terms of being more mature, being a little bit more mature in certain aspects, like in terms of being a little bit more, I mean, something that I'm still working on, but still trying to be patient with, with some people in a sense that, hey, you know, there, there's, there's people that are still trying to figure things out. They're still trying to come to terms with what they've been taught versus um, the reality. And even though, um, even though like, I'm, even though like, you know, I'm kind of, for some people I went to school with, like high school with, and not th them getting involved and some of them apologizing, saying, you know, we should have been listening to you instead of treating, instead of treating you like an outcast. Mm -hmm. Even though mm -hmm. I'm, I'm still kind of like, hey, you know what, better late than never. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I do, yeah. so like I said, I do see some progress uh, within myself. Like I said, it's still a struggle in, in a sense where I'm kind of like, this is obvious. Like, why aren't you getting it? But you know, I have to understand. People come to I like, come to the come to the movement on their like, on their own. So yeah, no, I see what you and with that, this is quite broad. But ultimately, why is it that you continue to do what you do? What drives you to continue with your journey? Well, what drives me to continue on with my journey is I just don't like, I just don't like bullies. Um, and what I mean by that is like growing up, you know, I got bullied, you know what I mean? I got bullied for a variety of reasons. And I was always taught that when you see injustice, you don't stand by and let it happen. You do something about it. And you know, for myself, it's kind of like, you know, with the injustices that's going on, not everybody can do everything. Like, no one's Superman, but you can at least do something. Um, it kind of ties back to what um, we touched on a little bit in terms of, like, what can, what, what, you know, what can someone do? Like, you know, like, like taking a test of your talents, like, you know, if protesting isn't your thing, why don't you write testimonies, you know? Why don't you get involved, like have a conversation with your neighbor. You know, if every, I, my thing is if everybody can do a little, then nobody would feel like they have to do a lot. And so I feel that when it comes to um, like, you know, what keeps me going, it's like trying to make sure that future generations can have a bit of a better time, you know, than, than we did and than, than my, than our generation. Um, because the, the struggle, as we like to call it, it was going on before any of us were born, and it's going to go on long after we're gone. But it's the but it's the stuff that we do in between then that determine how easier the next generation can have it. So that's what keeps me going in many, in many aspects. Okay, and coming to the end of the conversation, then Rob, the question that usually the guest finishes on. Considering what you've achieved so far and the journey that you've been on, what would you like to achieve in the future? What are the ultimate aims that you are working towards with your journey? Wow, that is definitely, <laughs> that's a deep question right there. Um, but I would like to say I'm ultimately, short term and long term, I guess would be the best way for me to break it down. So the short term, I would love to see um, like the African-American cemeteries, especially the ones that I'm, that I'm currently been part of fighting for, I would love to see that memorialized because that would be, a, I think, play a huge role in helping educate future generations about not only, you know, African-American burial customs, but also like, you know, the history of Black communities in whatever area you grew up in. That's short term. The long term, uh, the long term, um, while I hope I'm a I, I can live long enough to see it, I would love to see, I would, I would love to see liberation and community empowerment. You know, I would love to see us achieve what Dr. King called the beloved community. I would love to see, um, you know, people actually living together as brothers and sisters and understanding that living is a team sport. Um, those are things that I would love to see long-term. Will I see it? I hope so. But, you know, if I don't, well, 
at least I can rest easy knowing that I at least tried my best. So, absolutely. That's to conclude on, before we wrap this up, do you have any resources that you'd like to share? Anything that the listeners might find useful in their journey of understanding some of the issues that we've discussed throughout this conversation? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so one resource that I feel is pretty good is the 1619 Project. Uh, it was um, done, it was created by journalist um, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Um, what it does is that it actually talks about um, the, the origins of the United States and how that got started. Um, another um, resource was developed by um, Ibram X. Kendi. He is an author and a professor. Um, he also was, a, he's also a, um, <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Um, he also is a developer of like um, book talk. Um, which is like a type of podcast, like, you know, we talked about how to be anti-racist. Um, another resource that I think is really good um, is, it's is, is more of a news article site, um, but I think it really gives you like the other perspective. Um, it's known as um, Black Agenda Report. Um, that's so if you go online, uh, you, you can either type Black Agenda Report and um, you should, it's just, the first thing you see is to be like a website called blackagendareport.com. And it really does a really good job in terms of giving you like both an international as well as a national um, um, black perspective. Um, so those are the couple of resources that I have. Um, I have many more. In fact, what I can do is maybe I can either email you or Nick a, some of these resources. Yeah, I hugely yeah. and that would be very useful in our own journeys of understanding. No, exactly. Well, yeah, thank you very much for this chat, mate. I've really enjoyed it. I think it's been both enjoyable and insightful, and I'm sure the listeners will also feel the same. Thanks very much, and keep up the good work. All right, thank you so much, Connor and Nick, and thank you both once again for having me on your show, Comeback. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I definitely, you know, look forward to talking and working with you all. So thank you all so much.